Okay, so we are we are in the book of beginnings, and um, we have several beginnings already in the first ten chapters. We have the beginning of time in chapter one. We have the beginning of creation. We have the beginning of marriage in the garden. We have gospel beginnings after the fall where God promises to crush the head of the serpent, to bruise the head of the serpent, uh, even though the serpent would bruise the heel of uh, the seed of the woman. Gospel beginnings. We have governmental beginnings after the flood, the uh, authority to exercise judgment on mankind is delegated to Noah. And then in this chapter, uh, not just to Noah, but to mankind, mankind is given the ability, the permission, the command to uh, execute those who execute, who murder those who are made in the image of God. So it's the beginning of governments, the Noah, the Noahic uh, covenant is the beginning of the establishment of human governments. And then in Genesis 10, we have the beginning of nations. And it's a uh, tough, uh, it's a tough chapter in the sense that we are reaching deep into antiquity. We are reaching uh, into the deep past, the beginning of civilization and languages change, people change. And so tracing all of these uh, could be a very interesting exercise, and it is a very interesting exercise to trace these out, but uh, it involves a lot of speculation. It involves a lot of extra-biblical writings. Uh, and so we're not going to do that. We're not going to look at every single uh, person on this list, but uh, it is given to us. It is God-breathed. It is inspired. All Scripture um, is God-breathed, inspired, is useful, is instructive uh, to bring uh, um, uh, to instruct the righteous to to bring us into more knowledge of God, and I think the uh, some of the main reasons God put this in here is to set the stage for uh, what's going to happen with the rest of Scripture, what's going to happen with um, the nations, God's plan for the nations, and God particularly showing us how he is going to crush the head of the serpent, how he is going, how the seed of the woman is going to essentially redeem the nations. And these are the nations. These are the nations we see being redeemed uh, eventually, uh, that we are still even in that process. And uh, what we will see as we continue is that uh, that, uh, process takes place by God choosing a particular people out of this, which comes from Shem's line, uh, which is ultimately Abraham, which is Israel, which is David, and then ultimately Christ. Uh, and then one last thing that I think that uh, is helpful here, particularly in our era of uh, science worshipers, uh, science is always changing. Science can't make up its mind about anything. Science is coming to conclusions that we have known for thousands of years, and they're catching up with Christianity eventually uh, in some areas. Science discovers that 
intermittent fasting is good for you. It's like, yeah, well, we knew that. Uh, we practice that twice a week, you know, uh, or, you know, we encourage it uh, if it's not um, actually, you know, done in a kind of regulated way. We, we just got out of the season of Lent, a season of fasting. But anyway, the, the, the point that I'm making is we live in this era of science worship, and science is good. I mean, Christians gave science to the world. Christians own science. Uh, you know, atheists and pagans can never come up with anything as uh, wonderful as science. But science is a, uh, it's a handmaiden in the house of, uh, in the house of uh, Christ. It's not the master. And we live in a time where we think science is the master. Uh, scientists are the priest of the uh, materialistic, humanistic religion. And I bring that up because what we have here, uh, we, li we live in an age which says that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, humans have been around for, I think it's like 200,000 years or something like this. I don't know. Um, I don't really pay attention to them that much. But what we have here is a genealogical connection from Adam to Noah all the way down. We, we won't, we'll get into this next week but all the way down to Abraham. And from Abraham comes David and comes uh, Christ. And Christ is a historical person, as are all of these. And, uh, and it's, it presents, I think, a, a real challenge to those who want to say, um, well, the creation narrative is a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a uh, literary myth. It didn't actually historically happen but the truths are there, and uh, uh, we can take those truths. But it, it's, Adam wasn't a historical person. Um, uh, Noah wasn't a historical person. Th th this, is how, this is how the unbelieving world or liberal Christians want to view these creational, these, uh, the, the beginnings of uh, our own mythology, the true mythology, the factual mythology. But that, be, that presents a problem because you have a mythological man reaching into actual historical categories. And so basically what I'm saying is that these genealogies bridge uh, these historical figures together. So um, I want to just kind of go through a few of these uh, a few of these. Um, sons, these nations, these peoples, uh, just to kind of um, set in your mind how they spread out. Oh, and also, I have uh, some maps here. The printer was pretty terrible, but this kind of gives you an idea. Kind of gives you an idea of uh, what's going on here, and uh, yeah, essentially, I think these are pretty good. Um, essentially, and then we talked about this last week. Uh, Japheth's sons basically go into Europe. Shem's sons uh, move uh, eastward into Asia, and uh, Ham's sons move south into uh, Africa. I think that's a it's a fairly uh, simple way to put it, and all of them are kind of mixed there in the, in the Near East where, uh, where Noah would have landed. Um, so uh, that kind of gives you a big picture of what's going on. 
And uh, let's kind of zoom in on a few of these. Just we'll move through them fairly quickly. But uh, yeah, Japheth, uh, he uh, gives, um, he has a son named Gomer. And uh, Gomer settled in Cappadocia, which is Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. Uh, you may recognize uh, the Cappadocian fathers uh, during the, um, after the kind of Christological disputes, the Cappadocian fathers really kind of rounded off uh, who is God by really bringing in uh, who is the Holy Spirit into a kind of robust Trinitarian theology. Um, Herodotus, the ancient historian, uh, he says that they settled at Lake Van, which you can see there. Actually, no, you can't. Uh, but Lake Van, I believe, is in eastern Turkey. Um, Josephus actually says that the, um, that the descendants of Gomer, they settled in Galatia, which is there also in Asia Minor. Um, so Paul, writing to the Galatians, uh, was probably, could very well have been writing to the descendants of Gomer, Japheth's sons. To the, to the sons of Japheth, to the Galatians. Um, and then it's also speculated that they, they continued to settle further north of the Black Sea and uh, moved up into Germany and France and uh, Spain and the British Isles. Uh, Gomer is also mentioned in Ezekiel 38.6, along with other sons of Japheth who conspire against the people of Israel. Uh, in uh, Ezekiel 38.6, um, it says, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Torgamah, from the far north and all its troops, many people uh, are with you. And there's, there's other things that go on in this passage, but um, it's kind of this apocalyptic eschatological passage that is pretty popular among dispensationalists who are uh, obsessed with uh, apocalyptic literature. And uh, it's the you may recognize it as the battle of Gog and Magog against the Israelites. And uh, there's, it's pretty much the speculation as to what these prophecies meant or when they've occurred is, uh, is up in the air. It could be that these things are going to occur in the future. Um, it could be that they've already happened. And then there's a similar reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20. Um, and, uh, and that is also the nation's conspiring to destroy the people of God, uh, Israel, and dispensationalists typically think this is just Russia coming against Israel um, or the world going, going against Israel, and that's going to happen in our future. Um, but it could have been something that already happened, although in Revelation 20 and Ezekiel 38 may not actually be the same battle. It could just be different battles because Revelation 20 really seems to... Uh, be associated with the end of time. But I'm getting off on tangents here. Um, I also want to mention Gomer, of course, is the name of Hosea's unfaithful wife. And uh, there, there's, it doesn't really seem to be any connection with uh, the descendants of, of Gomer, Japheth's son here. It probably derives from the Hebrew term gamar, which means to cease um, or to be complete. Um, and so the proper names probably derive from, from that verb. Uh, but there's, it doesn't seem there's any kind of ancestral connection there. Uh, Magog, we see, uh, is another son that Japheth has. Uh, and that uh, comes from uh, Pastor Doug Wilson's blog, right? Uh, blog and May blog. Uh, no, that's, uh, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a clever name for a blog uh, by Pastor Wilson. But uh, 
That's, this is where it comes from. Um, you have Magog again in Ezekiel 38. Um, and uh, that phrase is in uh, verse 2. Actually, I'll just read the whole thing. Uh, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Um, and so it appears that Gog is some kind of ruler in the land of Magog, which would be the descendants of, of uh, Japheth's uh, sons here. And uh, I'll just go ahead and read the rest of this here because these are other sons of Japheth. Um, uh, set, he, so he says, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, uh, which is not here, I, 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 not in the table of nations, but Meshach and Tubal are, and prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, Horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Uh, I only, so I bring this up because uh, basically Gog, or Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, these are all sons of Japheth. So the brothers of the sons of Japheth are teaming up against Israel, and then they're also allied with the sons of uh, Ham. Uh, Ethiopia is Cush, and Libya is Put or Fut, and uh, Persia. Uh, I can't. I actually. I think Persia may uh, may actually be a descendant of uh, Shem, but I can't. I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway. Um, these guys are conspiring together against the people of God. And what does show that God does with them? God says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army. God becomes a hunter of men, just like we will read or we did read with Nimrod. Nimrod, actually, it doesn't say Nimrod was a hunter of men, but it does say that Nimrod became a mighty hunter. And, uh, and we see here that God is hunting men. Um, so anyway, an interesting contrast there. Um, okay, we'll keep moving on. Um, uh, J uh, Japheth gives, uh, he has Madai. Madai becomes the Medes, um, which is modern-day Iran. Um, and the Medes are throughout Scripture, they're in 2 Kings, they're in Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, and then they participate in the overthrow of Assyria, uh, which would have been Madai's uh, cousin Asher, which was a son of Shem. Uh, that's in the 7th century BC. Um, and the Medes, I believe... The Medes get taken over by the Persians, but the Medes are the, uh, this is where the religion of Zoroaster occurs, the pre-Zoroastrian religion, which I think then gets developed among the Persians. And the priest of Zoroaster, what are they called? Does anybody know? What are the priests of the Zoroastrian Persian religion called? 
They're called Magi. And the Magi, so these sons of Japheth, they come to Jesus when he's born. And it's the coming of the Gentiles to Christ. Uh, he gives birth, Japheth gives birth to Javan, and Javan becomes the Greeks, uh, the Ionians sometimes. Um, and uh, they settle in Greece, and uh, you know, let's see here. Um, yeah, the Bible kind of talks about this in Isaiah 66, and Ezekiel 27, and Joel 3. Um, and extra biblical literature kind of confirms that this is, uh, this is where the Greeks kind of come from as well. Meshach becomes the Slavs. Tyrus, uh, possibly the Etruscan people, which are the Italians. Uh, Ashkenaz, um, they place them north of Mesopotamia. And uh, it's, I think, in the Middle Ages where Jews were settling in the diaspora. Uh, I believe that they would name these areas after um, people... Uh, of the table of nations and the Jews that settled in kind of the area of Germany and France or maybe East Germany were called Ashkenazi Jews and Ashkenazi Jews are what are the main Jewish group that we see today which is an interesting kind of combination because uh, Ashkenaz is not Semitic <laughs> Ashkenaz comes from Japheth so it's a weird kind of combination um, Torgama, uh, again, is in Ezekiel 38. Uh, he's in the northerly direction, which you, you see there on your maps. Uh, Elisha is from Cyprus. Tarshish, uh, we hear Tarshish in the Bible. Tarshish comes up. Um, and Tarshish is the coastal region of southern Spain. It's all the way across the Mediterranean from where Israel is. Does anybody, anybody know a pretty Pretty famous story in the Bible where Tarshish comes up. Saul. Oh, really? I wouldn't be surprised, but where where is that? Saul or Tarshish? I don't think so. Tarsus. Tarsus. Paul of Tar Saul of Tarsus. Uh, I actually don't know. Um, I think so, though. I would imagine. Okay. But. Uh, uh, Tarshish is where Jonah tries to go to flee from the Lord, which is hilarious if you look on your map because it's all the way across the Mediterranean. It's, about, it's basically on the other side of the world. It's southern Spain. Uh, and, and he's told to go to Nineveh, which is just north of Israel a little bit. But he goes to Tarshish, or he tries to go to Tarshish, which is southern Spain. Uh, in verse 5, uh, we'll wrap up Japheth here. Verse, verse 5, it says, From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families. So it says that these are the coastland peoples, which if you look at your map here, a lot of them settled into Asia Minor, but a lot of them spread throughout the Mediterranean into Greece, Italy, and Spain. And so uh, uh, you see the coastland people in these uh, the sea really being uh, representative of the Gentiles, even in Scripture. In Isaiah 42, uh, 4, uh, it says, He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, 
you know, these are the coastland people. We are the coastland people, and, and the law has come to us. Okay, uh, moving on to Ham. Uh, just real quick, uh, Ham, uh, Kush is sometimes uh, translated as Ethiopia, which is a little bit north of where modern Ethiopia is, I, I believe. I believe uh, the Ethiopia of Scripture is more like what is modern-day uh, Sedan. Uh, um, and uh, so Kush is the Ethiopians, which is basically south of Egypt. Um, Misraim is uh, Egypt, and, and that is, Misraim is, uh, that is how it is, that is, uh, in Genesis 10, it's just a transliteration of, of Egypt. Um, so everywhere else in scripture, it still says Misraim, but it is translated Egypt. But here we actually see it as Misraim is one of Ham's sons. Put or Fut uh, is, uh, he settles in uh, west of Egypt, North Africa, so Libya area. And then uh, Canaan, of course, settles west of the Jordan River. And then within Canaan, um, we, are, we are told who Canaan's sons are. And uh, most of them also settle in that area uh, west of the Jordan where the Israelites eventually take over. Uh, and there are seven main nations that Israel uh, puts out of the land. Paul says this in Acts 19. Uh, he's, he's, uh, exhorting the men of the synagogue and, uh, he reminds them of what Israel did, um, that, uh, in verse 19, he says, and when, uh, he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them allotment in Deuteronomy seven. It says, when the Lord, your God brings you into the land, which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. And then here he lists the seven nations that Paul's referring to. The Hittites, which come from Het, which is also uh, a son of uh, Ham, which I believe is also a son of Canaan. The Girgashites, uh, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, which I don't think the Perizzites are in the table of nation. I couldn't really find where they came from. And the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And uh, right, so, so those are the seven nations. Um, one of them, and they, they all come from Ham, uh, the Jebusites. Um, does anybody recognize where they come from or where they are mentioned later on in the Bible? All of these nations are within Palestine, within modern, within Israel. Now, the land of Canaan. Jebusites, is that Judges 6? Uh, I don't think so. And Canaan is east of the Jordan, not west. Oh, it is west. No, it's west, yeah. Um, the Jebusites is where Jerusalem was established. David uh, takes it from the Jebusites. And I, I didn't look it up, but I think he actually, he might be there when he's on the run. He might make some sacrifice there. But 
but all of these areas are within there, and the Jebusites is the area of Jerusalem. Uh, the Girgashites are possibly related to the area which we see in the New Testament called the Gerasene. There could be some kind of uh, similar Girgashite, Gerasene. The Gerasene is where we see the demoniac that Jesus cures. Um, and the Hittites uh, the, from Het, they lived in part of what became Judah. Okay. Um, and then as we're reading in this, uh, reading the sons of Ham, we get to, uh, it's kind of this, it's kind of interrupted a little bit, and it's, it talks about uh, Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it goes, and he establishes these kingdoms, which are in Babel and Erech and Akkad, uh, and um, the, there's a lot of speculation as to what, uh, who Nimrod was. Um, again, we're reaching deep into antiquity here, but uh, he's, he's referenced starting from biblical languages and categories. Um, it seems to be a throwback to the giants uh, of the the fall of the uh, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, and they give birth to these giants. And in Genesis 6, 4, it says, uh, there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so um, up to this point in the Bible, mighty men are not good things. Mighty men are are in rebellion to God, um, and Nimrod is most likely one of these uh, 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 men in rebellion. And the name Nimrod could possibly be translated as man of rebellion. And what does he do? He goes and he establishes these kingdoms, possibly intermarrying with uh, the sons of Shem. Um, there's a lot of debate over uh, where these... Uh, Nineveh? Did it come from the Shemites? Did it come from? Uh, did it come from uh, Nimrod? Uh, and what we see here is uh, Nimrod. Also, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, which is kind of an enigmatic phrase. And I, I, I guess pretty much everything we know about him is speculative. But the way that I would take it is, he became a hunter of men. Um, God says to go out, spread out on the earth. You can hunt animals for food, but Nimrod does the opposite of that. He doesn't spread out. He establishes cities and kingdoms, and he hunts men. He brings men uh, under his dominion, under his control um, in these various ancient kingdoms. And before the Lord seems to be kind of this pious phrase, but I think it's more of a a rebellion, a kind of a rebellion in the face of God, particularly since he comes from Ham. And, and God says that Ham is, go, it says that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem and that Canaan will be a servant to both of them. And it could be that Nimrod is saying, you think I'm going to be a servant to them? No, I'm going to be a master over them. That is, uh, that's, that's my take on it, but it's, again, it's a lot of speculation. We don't really know exactly what's going on, but Nimrod is associated with a lot of uh, mighty men 
in ancient uh, civilizations. Um, he's been identified with uh, Sargon the Great uh, and uh, other kind of uh, other kind of uh, 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 I guess iconic men of ancient civilizations. There's other ones here, but I'm not going to attempt to to read them, and I don't even know who they are, except for Gilgamesh. Uh, so um, we'll keep moving here. Uh, we'll just finish it out with Shem, and then we got one more section to go through. Uh, Shem gives, he, he has Elam as a son. Elam most likely becomes the Persians. Elam appears again in Genesis 14, uh, where uh, Kedor Laomer, the king of Elam, uh, goes to war against Abraham. Abraham goes to war. He's actually allied with the king of Sodom, and he goes to war against this king of Elam, and uh, he wins. Asher is probably where the Assyrians come from. Josephus, he tells us this. He says, Asher uh, lived at the city of Nineveh, and he named his subjects Assyrians, who became the most fortunate nation beyond others. Uh, you have Aram, which is most likely the Syrians, and then you have Arphaxad, which is uh, the Babylonians. But then from that, from Arphaxad, you have Eber. Um, Arphaxad, in verse 24, begot uh, Salah, and Salah begot Eber. And from Eber, uh, you get Abraham. And Eber is where uh, we get the term Hebrews. Uh, and this is, uh, this is how Paul identifies himself. Remember, Paul says in Philippians 3.5, uh, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrews of Hebrews, a Aber of Aber. He's, he's an Aber, a Hebrew, concerning the law of Pharisee. So he's, uh, this is where that comes from. Um, And then, uh, yeah, the last thing here. Oh, man, it's hot. Is if you count up the number of sons here between Japheth, Ham, and Shem, you get 70. Uh, or uh, those, those numbers kind of vary too, but... Um, that number is significant throughout Scripture. Uh, from here, so I think 70 represents the whole world. It's, a, it's kind of this universal number of the nations. And then the next time we see it is in Genesis 46, 27, when Jacob's family comes to Egypt, and we're, and we're told all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So I think there, there might be something in that of the, the nations uh, being contained within the line of Abraham that they're going to be, that, that Abraham's line is going to bless uh, the nations. Um, Deuteronomy 10, oh yeah, Deuteronomy 10.22 and Exodus 1.5 also talk about the 70. Uh, and Deuteronomy 10.22 talks about almost a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It says, your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons 
And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And so there's a connection there between um, these are the, the sons of Abraham. Uh, God promises are going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven and that it's connected with the 70. And so I believe that that's essentially saying the, that Christians are going to be as numerous as the stars of heaven, um, that the, the promises to Abraham are going to go out into the nations. So there's just this connection here between the 70 and the promises of Abraham. Um, and then we see, this is another significant one in Numbers 11. The elders that are brought to Moses. Moses is unable to bear the responsibility of shepherding God's people, and so he he uh, he delegates authority. And the the presbytery that is formed is uh, made up of seventy elders. In Numbers eleven, it says this, and this is what the Lord directs him to do. So the Lord said to Moses, "Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel." whom you know to be the elders of the people and the officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting uh, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourselves alone. And I think that this is significant. And we will get into this more next week. But I believe that this is a typology of uh, you have the spirit that's on Moses, and I believe that that is a type of Christ, where Christ is baptized and the spirit comes on him, and then it's delegated to the 70 elders, and I believe that that is a type. The spirit is then, it is, the spirit that was on Moses is then given to the 70 elders, and the 70 represents the nations, and we see that being fulfilled at Pentecost, where the nations are there and the spirit that was on Jesus now comes on the nations. Um, and then uh, in 2 Kings 10.9, we see that the elders of Israel have become wicked. They are the... Um, actually, I don't know if they're synonymous, but I'm assuming that they are. We're, it's the sons of Ahab. There are 70 sons of Ahab. And uh, um, it's interesting, Jehu... Uh, Jehu kills, but he also has people kill for him. Uh, for example, the way that Jezebel is killed, he has the eunuch kill Jezebel for him. And it's similar with the sons of Ahab. He gets the men who, um, who are raising the sons of Ahab and kind of grooming them for leadership and all this. He sends them a letter and he says, if you're for me, you need to kill all these sons that you are in charge of, basically. And they do it. Um, in 2 Kings 10.9, it says, Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city. And that's an, also an interesting thing. We have another mighty, we have mighty men here uh, who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. And uh, I think that this is, um, I, this can mean a lot of things, but I think that uh, this more has to do with uh, uh, the leadership of, of the nations of the Gentile world being killed by the spirit, by the word, 
um, by the old man dying and the new man resurrecting and that these 70 uh, wicked rulers um, are being cleared out of, of uh, God's house here. Um, in Jeremiah 25, uh, we are told that uh, Israel spends 70 years in Babylonian captivity. Um, so there's another 70. In Daniel 9, we're told that there are 70 weeks in this prophecy, which is very obscure. I'm not really going to get into it, but a lot of people believe that uh, the 70 weeks is um, really 490 years, and that was a prophecy of the coming of Christ and his kingdom. Um, but what I think a lot of this builds up to is in Luke 10, Jesus sends 70 apostles out into the world. And so this, again, is the gospel blessing the nations, coming to the nations. And in Luke 9, what does he do, though? The chapter before, he sends 12 disciples out to Israel. And so what I believe that is, it's the pattern that Paul references in Romans, where he says, uh, uh, I am not, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God and salvation to those who believe. To who first? The Jews. To the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And that's what we see with Jesus sending out the apostles. Send the 12 out, which the 12 represent Israel. Send the 70 out. 70 represent the nations. And I just want to end here on Psalm 2. We have this table of nations. We have the splendor and the glory of these pagan nations. And it's all come down and they've, they've all been raging against Israel and God's people, the church. Um, and they continue too to this day. And yet we will be, we are made to be a blessing for them. We are made, we are elect so that we can bless the nations so that uh, the nations can come into this house of prayer and worship God, that they can bring their sacrifices and sacrifice before Yahweh God. Um, and all the things that the nations rage and they plot are uh, a vain thing. All these things that we see in the world happening now, um, feminism, the globalism, alt-light, alt-right, socialism, all of these things are just going to disappear into the dustbin of history at some point. And uh, I just want to read Psalm 2 here to end things out because the purpose of showing us these people is that they, we have been fragmented, we have gone and served other gods, but God chose a particular people from one of these men um, and he has begun the process of bringing us back into himself, of uniting the nations back into himself in Christ. And there's no other way to do that except in Christ. And so Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And I, I like that phrase there. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which uh, can have a messianic prophet, uh, kind of uh, prophetic 
fulfillment, but I also think it has to do with when people attack the church, they are attacking the Lord. It is an assault on the king. It is assault on the anointed, which is us, but it's also an attack on the anointed, capital A, which is Christ, which is the king. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. How undignified. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Wow. Doesn't that grate against certain sensibilities? Holds them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And I, I really like what, what is promised here. Promised here to Christ, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And this, was, this is offered to Christ, the Son, by the Father. But there's also another offer of the nations to Jesus by somebody else. Who is that? Satan. Yeah. He's taken out into the desert and Satan offers him the same thing. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. But it was only if he worshipped Satan, only if he did it against and contrary to the Father's will. And so we see that the nations are to be given to us, are to be given to Christ. We are in Christ, but it is only in accordance with the Father's will. And he has shown us how these things happen, how we partake in, these, in this uh, inheriting of the nations. Uh, and that is through obedience, through listening to God's word, living it out, preaching it, evangelizing, praying. All of these things are part of receiving the inheritance of conquering the nations, bringing this table of nations under the dominion of Christ. So let's pray.